Welcome to Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's election day and the state of our democracy is under intense focus. There are calls to guarantee voting rights, change campaign financing, and end gerrymandering. One change you might not have thought about, and it is gaining traction around the country, is ranked choice voting. Ranking candidates in order of preference is happening in lots of U.S. cities. Minneapolis, Oakland, and San Francisco have done it. You might have heard about the state of Maine, the first state to adopt ranked choice voting. Our next mayoral campaign with 17 candidates in Chicago could provide a lesson in why ranked choice voting is a good idea. Here to talk about it is Robert Middlecoff. He's lead organizer and founder of Fair Vote Illinois, which is advocating for ranked choice voting. Thanks for joining us, Robert. Yeah, thank you. And Ruth Greenwood is here. She's senior legal counsel for voting rights and restricting the campaign for and, and redistricting rather uh, with the Campaign Legal Center. Thanks for joining us, Ruth. It's great to be here. Thank you, um, Ruth. You're originally from Australia, where ranked choice voting has been around since when? Since 1924. Actually, it was used earlier in the small state of Tasmania, but federally, we've been using it forever. My whole lifetime, my parents' whole lifetimes. Well, you seem well-versed in what this is. Uh, What is is ranked choice voting? Yeah, I mean, from a voter's perspective, it's really straightforward. You turn up to the polls and you decide who you like the most and give them a one, who you like the next most and give them a two, and then so on down to however many candidates there are. Um, On the back end, when you count them, it gets a little more difficult. You basically work out who has the lowest amount of votes, remove their votes and redistribute them to the number twos. You know, so if somebody gets a very small amount, then whoever they preferred second. Um, A really nice way to think about it is, um, I guess it's going back a ways now, but in the Bush v. Gore election in Florida, um, there are a lot of people that voted for Ralph Nader. If those voters had been able to choose number two, either Gore or Bush, then those votes could have been redistributed. uh, And you end up getting the candidate that is the most preferred by the most number of people. Some people refer to it as an instant runoff. It is like an instant runoff. Right. And actually, I guess here in Chicago, uh, that's easier to understand, right? As you mentioned with the mayoral election, um, we're going to end up just taking the top two people and go through to April and just have them run against each other. If you voted, you know, one through 17, instantly you could cut up those numbers and work out who was the most preferred candidate. Um, Robert, uh, why did you want to get interested in this? What are you in real life? You, you're, 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 you became the lead organizer of Fairvoit in Illinois, but you have a real day job. You don't have to get involved with this issue. Why did you do it? Sure. Uh, I'm just a concerned citizen, and I'm originally from Florida, actually, and I was there in 2000 uh, during Bush v. Gore. And, uh, you know, since then, I've just become more frustrated with politics, as many people in my generation are. And moving to Illinois, I realized, wow, I've lost a lot of political power. Uh, you know, here we are a pretty blue state. Florida's really purple. And as I saw a lot of these elections happen where, uh, you know, you don't have a lot of choices, things are decided by money, and, and I'm just frustrated. And I think a lot of people in my generation are just exhausted. Why is ranked choice voting a good solution in your mind? Well, I think that it solves a lot of different problems like spoiler candidates where you have three candidates in a race and one candidate can come in and split the vote between two factions and then you get a 
uh, a winner with maybe 20%, 30% of the vote who's not as popular. Um, another thing is that it really preserves a lot – some of our system is that you can go as a voter and just vote for one candidate like in the old system. But if you have a bunch of different preferences, you're not happy with that first choice or not happy with the leading candidate, then you can choose second, third, or fourth choices. And and the other thing is that uh, it's used in other places. And this is a real reform. It's not a radical idea, and it's happening. Yeah, as, a, as an Australian, I should say, when I go to vote, um, I knew that my vote would be distributed if my first person didn't get elected. So it, I lived in a district where my candidate um, wasn't going to get elected but I wa- from the major party, but I wanted them to know that I didn't agree with them on certain issues. And I felt like I could pick out the party that had the particular issue I cared about. So one of them was disability education for children. I had a friend running, so I could put them number one, and then the candidate would know they had my number two, and they could see where the one had come from. I felt like I could express myself a little more at the polls rather than just up or down, do I like you or not? It it changes your strategic voting options. You don't feel like you have to vote with the candidate that you you should because they're going to win. Right. I mean, last time, all the people that voted, you know, for Jill Stein and Gary Johnson got (laughs) shamed in public for having, you know, perverted the the course of the election. But if they really liked those candidates, that's great. They should be able to put number two for one of or, or three for one of the major party candidates. We're talking about ranked choice voting and what it would bring to our elections if we use it more often in this country. Uh, I wanted to talk about some of the subtler things in which it solves, which people may not think about. Um, there are studies that say that it encourages candidates to be less negative. Can you explain how that could be, Ruth? Yeah, I mean, uh, I've spoken with one of the people who ran in Minnesota, um, in in Minneapolis, and she said she realized that she couldn't be uh, she had to go to candidates, so to voters, and say, well, I may not get your number one, but what about number two? And so instead of completely writing off people and saying, well, you know, that's an area that I'm never going to get a vote from, she had to be a little bit nicer to the people that may vote for her and then the people that maybe won't, but she at least wanted their three or their four. And so everybody is encouraged, I think, to be nice because someone might give them a vote that'll help um, instead of just completely writing off half the population that you think won't vote for you. So in the idea of a candidate being nice, that would mean less extreme. You would want to move to the center on you would, on your positions, well, essentially, because you've got to get more of the pie. Well, there's two things. So one of them is you're just nicer when you campaign. But secondly, because you end up being able to select um, amongst a whole series of different candidates, there may be people that would want, uh, say, a Bloomberg-type character who's sort of neither Republican nor Democrat. But at the moment, no one would vote for that on a, well, potentially a presidential election because there's a you know an R and a D on the, on the ballot. But if you have this ranked choice voting, it's not throwing away your vote to vote for that middle person. And so you do end up getting those middle candidates. It's not that they become more in the middle because of the ranked choice voting. It's that you actually elect those more moderate folk. We're talking about ranked choice voting, and with us is Ruth Greenwood. She's senior legal counsel for voting rights, and Robert Middlecoff. He's a lead organizer and founder of Fair Vote Illinois. And if you have some questions about this system, give us a call. Um, 312-923-9239 is the number to call. 312-923-9239 and ask a question about ranked choice voting. In this country, uh, we don't have a lot of elections with multiple candidates. We have a two-party system. Does that mean it's harder to get traction on this idea? 
I think a lot of people are used to the two-party system. And so to I remember saying this to my boss, Trevor Potter, as the chairman of the um, Campaign Legal Center, and I was explaining it to him, and he said, it's not like wrong or anything, but it's a bit like telling Americans to use the metric system. <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> of course it makes sense. <laughs> right, it makes sense, but it's, it's just not what we do. Um, yeah. Right. And the other thing is we have primaries here, and the, the Democratic primary for governor, we had six candidates, and the winner won 45% of the vote. And we have, uh, during primaries, there's always a lot of candidates. And it is interesting to think about what could happen. And I have I do not pay a lot of attention to the polls in the mayoral governor's race uh, it, or the mayoral race here. And I went and asked, who is leading in the polls? And the two runoff candidates right now would be um, would be Willie Wilson, who's not, who's coming in second right now, and uh, Gary McCarthy, who's coming in first right now, and they're both at like sixteen or fifteen percent or something like that, and that's that's not that doesn't seem like it's really well right. I mean, if you say they have fifteen or sixteen percent, that means seventy percent of the voters want someone else, <laughs> right? And it, it would be nice to know who between all of them they would prefer. Can I add, though, one thing that is really good with ranked choice voting, particularly if you use it with multi-member districts, um, is that it means that you don't need to have residential segregation to get someone elected. So in the city of Chicago, um, we are able to get, you know, um, African-Americans elected from the south side because we're super segregated. Uh, If you move out to the suburbs, though, you have populations that are more integrated on a racial and ethnic basis. And if you were to use ranked choice voting with multi-member districts, so say you have six, you know, trust for your board, um, you can actually get more people of color elected to office. And I know that today everybody says that we're having more women and more people of color than ever before. But if you're running in a first-past-the-post system, it's really hard to get elected um, as a minority. Uh, But things like ranked choice voting can actually help with that, which is really important. Very interesting. Uh, We've got a call. Jim in Orland Park, you're on WBEZ. Hi. I just wanted to... uh make a little comment. Uh, I think we'll save a lot of money with ranked choice voting and uh, maybe only have one election instead of a primary and a general election. What do you think? Uh, Robert, how do you how do you save money with ranked choice voting? Yeah, you can. If you think of the mayor's race, we have a runoff in that race, and it costs a lot of money to have that second election. And the other thing that is really uh, sort of distorting in that is that not a lot of people come out to that runoff, so you have fewer people voting, fewer people deciding who our leaders are going to be. Um, and the other really distorting thing that a lot of people don't think about in Chicago is. Sometimes we have some wards will have uh, a runoff for the aldermen. And so those wards with aldermen having a runoff are going to have higher turnout. And those people in those wards are going to have a bigger influence on who their mayor is. And so you have all these distorting effects that come together when you have this second election. So runoffs are distorting. Right. And I know that Iowa next door to us here would be annoyed to get rid of primaries, but it would mean that you wouldn't have these specific little states that have more of a say in certain things. You just have election day, everybody votes or election month if you have early voting. Everyone at once, the whole country becomes more equal. We're talking about ranked choice voting and taking a few calls at 312-923-9239. Keith and Aurora, you're on WBEZ. Hi. I actually think it's a great idea, but while you're experts are there, I was wondering if they could say what other folks' criticism of the system may be, of the new system, ranked choice voting. Thank you. One thing people say is too complicated. 
Right. The counting seems complicated, so it's hard to explain the counting. Um, And the other thing is, if you're a person who's currently in power under the current system, um, you don't want it to change. You have worked out how to get elected and stay elected and never never have an opponent, potentially. Um, And so it is hard when you're trying to go to the people in power. When you tell it to people everyday people, like voters, they're like, this is great. Why don't we do this? I I teach election law at Loyola Law School. Um, And if I start out by explaining ranked choice voting with multi-member districts, the rest of the course makes no sense because everybody's like, well, why don't we just do that? You know, that's that's way better. It solves all our problems. All right. Here's a caller who's still a little confused. Patricia, you're on WBEZ. Oh, thank you, Jerome. Uh, Thanks for taking my call. I love your show. Um, you know, and the more you're talking, I'm very sorry. I'm getting more confused. I'm 73. I have never not voted. I always vote. I consider myself pretty politically aware, sort of. But um, I, like you mentioned, one thing, I'll give you an example. You said if there are 17 candidates, does that mean like on a questionnaire you'd go, okay, that's my first choice, second, all the way down the line? Um, that, what if I don't how, even know? How far do you go? Do you got to do all 17, Patricia? It depends. In America, we don't ever use the compulsory version. So you only have to do one if you want one. If you like two or three people, you can put down two or three, or you can go all the way to 17. In Australia, we have it differently. Actually, in our state elections, you can do as many as you like. But in federal elections, it's not counted unless you vote all the way down the ballot. All right. So most people, they they just do as many as they want. Right. One, two, three, four, something like that. The people that you think might actually get your vote in the end. Uh, does that sound all right? Yes, that that helps. Um, I'm still, you know, you're also talking about gerrymandering and and all these other issues, and it's it's um it's a lot to uh, take in. I wish there were some um, simple pamphlet or something you could send out and we could read about it, or put it on the web or something. I don't know. Yeah, it's a little hard for us, especially. You know, we're not used to this at all. You so know, for me, it's- if you like wine, there might be an event that could explain this to you really clearly. Okay. Robert, what is yeah. it? Sure. So uh, we are hosting an event at Hopleaf in Andersonville where you can come and rank some wine with us and you can see exactly how it works. And if you can't make that event, we also have a ranked choice voting poll on our website at fairvoteillinois.org. So you're going to get how many bottles of wine up there? 17? <laughs> yeah. You're going to recreate the mayoral race? Recreate it with wine, Can yeah. Can you put little faces on them? <laughs> little faces. <laughs> and then, then you'll do it right in front of people and you'll discern the, the most popular bottle of wine in, in the group. Right, yeah. We do it right. We have a computer there and we can show you the calculation and, and each round of voting. All right. That sounds like fun. Um, we've got another call. Uh, William, you're on WBEZ. Hi, yeah, I, very interesting topic. I'm curious if you can comment around what is the, the process to change the election laws? And a little bit of what was talked about earlier, it is, is the incumbents having to, to really kind of weigh in and, and um, where has this been successfully transitioned that shows that incumbents are willing to, you know, change the election laws? All right, Ruth. I was uh, say, William, you're a clever man. <laughs> <laughs> this is Maine is having a gigantic wrestling match with this thing. Right. So in almost every state, the way that you would do it, and this is from local to state to federal elections, would be uh, through a uh, sorry, not for federal, would be through a constitutional, sorry, through a constitutional amendment to the state. So in Maine, they voted, the whole um, state had a referendum where they decided they wanted to use ranked choice voting for their federal and for their state elections. Then the legislature decided they didn't like that. And so they were able to override that. Um, And 
Then the people decided they didn't like that override, and so they voted again to re-override the override. Uh, now, in most places, it doesn't quite get that complex. In places like San Francisco and Oakland, they put it on the ballot one time. They say, do you want ranked choice voting? The people voted yes, and then they adopt it. And that would be the same case here in Chicago. You could do a, state, a citywide initiative or a statewide initiative, or even in – actually, today, they're gathering signatures in Carpentersville and Lansing to try to put ranked choice voting um, on the ballot next year. And Maine had this experience with its governor's race, and they got Paul LePage a couple governor's races ago. In he had a very like a thirty some percent of the vote, and he became the mayor. And he's got some pretty wacky views. People might have heard some of his views. He's he's you know he's not a, a regular mainstream guy. I'm from a nonpartisan organization, and I wouldn't want to make comments <laughs> on particular politicians. But um, but I do think that the people of Maine have spoken many times to say that they want ranked choice voting. All right. And we're talking about ranked choice voting with Ruth Greenwood and Robert Middlecoff. And we're going to, to uh, Sam in, uh, Sam on WBEZ. Hi. Yeah. I was just curious uh, about if you had ever um, – I heard about another voting method called um, approval voting, I think, where you have like all the candidates. You just select any ones that you would be fine with voting for, which I heard is also likely to pick – you know, this theoretical Condorcet winner. So I was wondering if you had, were familiar with that voting method and if you could compare ranked choice voting to approval voting. Yeah, so there's a lot of different methods out there. Um, and the math gets a little tricky depending on how many people you're electing and, and what system you're using. But you're right. It is generally a good way. If you went through the 17 candidates and you just said up or down, yes or no, do I like them? You generally, it, the math should work out that you get the right person. Um, the idea, I guess, behind ranked choice voting is it, it's a little bit more used, maybe not so much. I mean, it's used in some places in America and certainly around uh, the world. There's also, um, I read a whole book called Gaming the Vote about what is the best mathematical system. And they ended up deciding that the best was like like Yelp ratings, like you just give a five to people that you like. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I don't know. We, we have to see which one we can get. Anything's better than first past the post, basically. Uh, all right. We'll take one more call. Rick, you're on WBEZ. Hi. My question is uh, about the, the uh, ranked choice voting. Has anyone done uh, studies to see if it's going to be more or less easy to be hacked? I'm, I'm concerned about, like, you know, the, the complicated algorithms that you would use in counting the votes and whether or not that's uh, as safe or maybe safer than the current system. Robert? So I, I think one thing to think about, if you implement ranked choice voting, you usually have to upgrade your voting system, and so that's one thing to think about. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I don't think that it, depending on your security system, it, I don't think it makes a, it better or worse. But there's ways to do it so that it is just as safe as any other system. I mean, in Australia, we still vote with pencil and paper, and that's pretty safe. <laughs> it's hard to, hard to hack that. Maybe the counting mechanisms can be hacked, but uh, you can always go back to the paper. As soon as, soon as we get to blockchain, we'll, we'll be done, <laughs> we're done with everything here. Exactly. <laughs> Uh, I want to ask you, uh, Robert, if you have some ideas about when we can get this in Illinois. Is this something that uh, we can worm in before we got to vote for these 17 mayoral candidates? Sure. I, I think we're still having conversations about when. I think the earliest would be 2020. But we need people excited about this. You know, a lot of politicians say, well, I think that's a cool idea, but a lot of people don't care about this. And so we need people to make this, you know, their number one or maybe two or three issues that they're talking to people about and excited about. And if we do that, we could absolutely get this done in Illinois. 
are there people who are against this, uh, politicians who've come out and said, well, I don't like this idea? I haven't heard anybody in Illinois uh, really campaign – uh, against it strongly, but there are ones who are in power and they're like, well, this I got in power this way. I like this system. So there, there's some inertia in the system, but there's definitely a lot of politicians I've talked to who are excited about this. And there are a bunch of states that have this uh, coming – or places in the United States that have this coming online. They've already made the moves and, and they'll be doing it soon. Oh, I mean, yeah, there are places that have been using it for 10 years. In fact, Cambridge, um, outside of Boston, has been using it for like 40 years. Um, yeah, there's becoming more and more cities. So Santa Fe just voted to adopt it. Um, there's a vote today in Memphis to see whether they will uh, be able to use it going forward. As I mentioned, Minneapolis, St. Paul, Oakland, Berkeley. Um, you know, hopefully we get beyond big cities and out to all of America. But we'll see. We'll see how we go. And the Rankier Wine event is Wednesday, November 14th at 6 p.m. at Hopleaf in Chicago. And you can get more information about rank choice voting where, Robert? Uh, fairvoteillinois.org. Fairvoteillinois.org. Thanks a lot for joining. You've got Facebook pages and all the rest. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thanks very much for joining us. Robert Middlecoff, lead organizer and founder of Fair Vote Illinois, which is advocating for ranked choice voting. And Ruth Greenwood, uh, senior legal counsel for voting rights and redistricting with the Campaign Legal Center. Thank you both for joining us and talking about ranked choice voting. Thanks for having Thank us. Thank you, Jerem. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about changing the narrative on asylum seekers. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The president has put his apocalyptic rhetoric about asylum seekers at the centerpiece of the Republican midterm effort. A racist ad the president shared on his Twitter feed was rejected by TV networks, but nothing has stopped the president's fear-laced verbiage. At this very moment, large, well-organized caravans of migrants are marching toward our southern border. Some people call it an invasion. It's like an invasion. They have violently overrun the Mexican border. You saw that two days ago. These are tough people in many cases. A lot of young men, strong men, and a lot of men that maybe we don't want in our country. We have no idea who they are. All we know is they're pretty tough people when they can blast through the Mexican military and Mexican police. They're pretty tough people. Even Mexico said, wow, these are tough people. I don't want them in our country. And women don't want them in our country. Women want security. Men don't want them in our country, but the women do not want them. Women want security. You look at what, what are, the women are looking for. They want to have security. 
Let's talk about an effort to change the narrative to a more reality-based conversation on asylum seekers. With us is Sarah Conway. She's editorial director of 90 Days, 90 Voices, and they tell stories of those seeking a home in the United States. Great to meet you, Sarah. Great to meet you, too. With us also is Melanie Shakori, executive director of the Interfaith Community for Detained Immigrants. They work with people affected by immigration detention, deportation, and post-detention. Great to see you, Melanie. Melanie and I live next, close to each other. I ride my bike down by her house every day, and we go to the same church. So it's great to have you here in your official capacity. Thanks for having me. And with us also is Ikram Hanna, and she is a community engagement specialist with the Iraqi Mutual Aid Society, and she runs the Women's Empowerment Group there. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Uh, As someone who uh, has come from Iraq as an immigrant on a special visa program, um, how do you feel about everything you're hearing in this campaign from the President of the United States? Yes, actually, uh, what like I'm here because I feel like I have a lot of stories uh, from my clients or from my family members that I would like to share. Maybe that's going to change um, like a lot of things about, I mean, like the the thoughts about refugee or immigrants or even asylum seekers. So I mean, I just feel like sad about th- about that, um, especially for asylum seeker. I believe that they are really they are legal to be here in America. And there's a reason that they are here. Well, tell us about some of the stories you want people to know about. Oh, yeah, sure. Um, So I can just tell you that um, we came six years ago to America from the north of Iraq. And uh, that was a very hard decision for us to leave our family member, our friends, our church there. And when we came here, uh, one of my like uh, like sibling, she's my my uh, oldest sister. Like we were very like close to each others. So when we when we left, like I was the first family member who will leave Iraq at that time. So it was a very hard time for my family. Actually, I, I I cannot forget that day when I left. Everyone were crying, and we're, everyone were like very sad, and we didn't really have like any words to say. And I left home to the airport and we all were crying. So what happened after that, my sister and her family, she has a husband and two kids. After a year and a half, she felt like, we really miss you guys. We just want to see you. So I said, well, why don't you come for a visit? They said, well, okay, um, we'll try to take like a, like a, like a, to come like as a visitor. And they applied for the visa and they got it. Uh, they came uh, to Chicago to stay for only one month, but while they were here, ISIS they took over Mosul and the, the villages in the north of Iraq, and like like my sister with her family, they were really terrified to go back. But at the same time, they didn't really want to stay here because they, they 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 had like a very stable life in Iraq. Like my my they have like a house, they have a car- like their own career, you know. And my, my old family member, they were in Iraq too. So it's very hard for them to like just to make like that decision to stay here. But they didn't have like really that much options at that time. So we just said, well, guys, you need just to stay. It's like, I mean, for the, for the safety of your family. That's a, that's a very real story. Yeah, yeah. And they are here now, actually. And they both, like, um, like my sister with her husband, they, they are very hard workers and their kids, like, um, going to school, you know. I mean, they are not really um, yep. enjoying their life here, but they didn't have option to go back. 
Ikram Hanna is Community Engagement Specialist with the Iraqi Mutual Aid Society. Melanie Shakori is with the Interfaith Community for Detained Immigrants. Melanie, can you tell us something about what happens to people who are detained? I think this is an invisible world to most listeners after there's some controversy about detention, but nobody knows what happens. Yes, well, uh, when uh, someone is picked up by immigration, they're taken to a detention center. We work in four detention centers in the Chicago area. Two are in Wisconsin, two are in Illinois. And this is a contract that the government has with county jails or with a private prison company, depending on which state you're in. And so it's a confined setting. People have to wear a uniform. They are shackled at the uh, race, weight, wrists, waist, and feet um, when they're transported. And um, a lot of the jail staff is not trained differently in working with immigrants than with a criminal population. They have limited movement. They have a commissary account where they can buy things that are very overpriced. Um, there's a profit margin there for companies that contract with the jails. And it's a very dehumanizing process. They, um, many of them have never been in a jail setting before. And to be suddenly, for immigration reasons, put in a confined setting or a jail is, is very traumatic for them. And Interfaith Community for Detained Immigrants, you provide pastoral care and um, describe what happens. We do. We enter these uh, four county jails, and we provide pastoral or spiritual care to people of all different faiths. We have over 300 volunteers in our organization who become trained in active listening and in a ministry of presence. And they spend time with people there um, about half an hour at a time, one-to-one, and help those people figure out what about their faith background or what about their um, interior resilience is going to help them get through this difficult time. Uh, now, you have a, um, a, a spot where people can come out of the prison system and, and we do describe we, that. Yeah, several of our programs, um, the jail and also we work with children, those are kind of harm reduction programs where we're entering a system, but we have a house of hospitality, and um, it's called the Marie Joseph House of Hospitality, where we can welcome people who do not have friends or family in the United States that they can go to after they're released from detention. And oftentimes, these are people seeking asylum or people who were recently granted asylum. And in this house, this is our model of what really we should be doing when people come to the country. I would look love the day when we get a call from the border instead of from a jail setting where um, there's a family or an individual who has arrived and they are not a threat to society and they just need some care. We have case manager and we connect people to all kinds of services, education, medical, dental, mental health, job training, and get people on, well on their way to um, adjusting to life in the United States. That sounds like a great idea. This is something that happens in other places. Um, there are a few other programs like ours that offer housing. There are none that offer such a long stay as we do, and we do it all on private funds. We don't receive funds from the government. Melanie Shikori is executive director of the Interfaith Community uh, for Detained Immigrants. And with us is Sarah Conway, the editorial director of 90 Days, 90 Voices, telling stories of people seeking home in the United States on the web. Um, you've become 
pretty friendly with the interfaith community for detained immigrants and have been getting stories from there. Tell us about what you're doing. Yeah. um, So 90 Days, 90 Voices, we're... Uh, we have a Kickstarter right now. We're trying to raise funds um, to do a project called Asylum City. Um, but kind of Asylum City, it builds off of coverage that we've been doing for the past um, almost two years um, about people that are coming to the U.S. Um, uh, for a variety of reasons. Um, we've focused on a lot of stories with uh, refugees, um, with uh, people who are here seeking asylum. Um, but we kind of decided... After during the summer, we focused on um, looking at uh, people with undocumented status in Little Village. Um, we decided we wanted to really focus on what it means to seek asylum in Chicago, um, to seek sanctuary here. So we've started uh, a project um, called Asylum City, and we've been working with a variety of community partners. Um, one is Iraqi Mutual Aid Society. Um, another is Interfaith Community for Detained Immigrants. Um, and the idea of the project is to um, humanize the stories of uh, people who are seeking asylum in ch- the Chicago area um, to kind of examine what the asylum process is like. So to put out more information to the public on um, what is affirmative or defensive asylum? Um, why do people end up in detention centers? Um, why do some people not up in, end up in detention centers while their claims are being processed? And then also to just really like honor the stories of people that are coming here. Um, and I think like part of that is that as a group of journalists um, in Chicago, we really want to create community. Um, and this is something we were talking about in the hallway. Like that's just kind of like something that I think like we all share, whether it's Iraqi Mutual Aid Society or Interfaith that or 90 Days that we want to build community with people. And part of that is um, trying to take away, I would say, the um, kind of transitor- or transactional um, um method of journalism and really investing in getting to know people and getting people to consent to being part of a storytelling process and to tell the stories that they want to about their experience. So that's really like at the heart of what we're doing with this new project. Um, And we are focusing on um, people seeking asylum here. And it's going to be kind of a long process. It's it's drawn out over six months, but it's a, um, I guess, like a slow journalism approach to these issues. So you go and have dinner with the interfaith community of detained immigrants at the hospital home for house for hospitality. Yeah, that's what we're doing right now. Like we, um, for I would say about a month ago, um, we have just been going to the communal dinners um, every at the start of the week um, and just spending time with people where they they share dinner and talking to people, getting to know them as people um, and not just as. Um, you know, an asylum seeker or an immigrant. Um, are, there, are there what misconceptions are there about asylum seekers, Melanie? People who are. I was reading that um, Venezuelans are the top asylum seekers in in the United States these days. Well, we heard the clip that you had at the top of the our, our segment, and um, I think there are misconceptions that um, asylum seekers pose a threat, or that they are here um, illegally, and. Neither of those are true. These are people that are seeking refuge here. They have been through a lot themselves. They have experienced threat themselves. And um, 
so for people to think that this is some kind of invasion, I would suggest that it's really an exodus. These are people um, fleeing horrific conditions in home country, and they are asking for help. The only way to get asylum is to come to our country and ask for it. You cannot get it ahead of time. You cannot get it from your home country. Um, yeah. Well, you know, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll come back with more, and we'll talk about the Project Asylum City. Melanie Shikori is with the Interfaith Community for Detained Immigrants. Uh, Sarah Conway is Editorial Director for 90 Days, 90 Voices. And Ikram Hanna is the Community Engagement Specialist with the Iraqi Mutual Aid Society. We'll be back with more after the break. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. We're talking about changing the narrative on asylum seekers. With us is Sarah Conway, editorial director of 90 Days, 90 Voices, and they're telling stories on that website that uh, of people seeking a home in the United States and their new project they want to get going is Asylum City. Um, tell us more about uh, – you've got a very specific thing on the Kickstarter campaign page trial – uh, page where you talk about all the different things you're going to do with Asylum City. Yeah. What are you going to do? Yeah, so um, it's a pretty expansive project. So one component of the project is that we are um, specifically looking into the Venezuelan uh, community in Chicago. Um, Venezuelans currently make up the largest uh, group of asylum seekers in the United States. Um, and we're working with two journalists, um, Jeff Stelfox and Amanda Tugati. And um, kind of going back to what I said before, like, we're all about building community. So like, we want to build community with people that have come to the US and have stories to share, but also with other journalists that care about doing reporting on um, immigration in Chicago. Um, that's one isn't, part of isn't the whole thing that the Venezuelans are the number one asylum seekers, uh, just kind of mind blowing in itself. I mean, all we hear is, uh, is not about that. It's about something yeah. else, even though we know we've got this gigantic problem in Venezuela where people are fleeing the country in droves. Yeah, I, I think it kind of goes into when you were playing the clip from um, President Trump earlier, there's a lot of misinformation out there. And um, the the legal process of seeking asylum has been very politicized into something that's for whatever reason seen as criminal when it's not. Um, I think kind of to remove myself as being, I would say like an objective or reporter right now, I think as journalists, we have like a, a moral obligation to look at how we are treating asylum seekers in this country right now. And I think um, like part of why we connected with Melanie for this project is that they do det uh, work with, um, asylum seekers who have been in detention. And I think that we have an obligation to really look at how we're treating people that are coming here to seek safety. Um, you know, I think one thing that we kind of forget is that we're living in, in uh, a time period where there's massive displacement worldwide. I mean, I was looking at um, UN statistics and it was just crazy to think that every single day in the world, there's 44,400 people that are leaving their homes because of persecution or war. 
um, you know, there's over 60 million people that are displaced right now worldwide. So I think it just like kind of at the heart of this project is looking at the idea of why are we politicizing and criminalizing people that have the legal right to seek asylum here? Um, and how are we treating those people? Um, to kind of go back to like what we're going to produce with this project, we also are trying to write and print um, a graphic novel um, that is about um, a man that's seeking asylum here in Chicago um, from Syria. Uh, and we're also going to um, produce a series of stories that are based on, I would say, like participatory journalism that we're going to be working with um, Iraqi Mutual Aid Society and, and interfaith community for detained immigrants, um, working with people that they serve and that are a part of their community um, to um, have people tell st- their story their way. Um, and that's a slow process. So that's kind of like the, the work that we're planning on doing with this project. So your whole uh, campaign, you think this you can get this whole thing started for 10,000 bucks, is it? Uh, yeah, I mean, we do. Um, <laughs> I would say like why we're doing this is for the past two years, we've been just running this organization as volunteers. I think that... And that's 90 Days, 90 Voices. 90 Days, 90 Voices, yeah. Um, I think that for myself and Nisari and Alex Hernandez and Michelle Kanar and Dan Rowal, um, as well as Min- Amanda and Jeff, that we feel that we have a strong moral obligation to do this type of reporting. And I mean, yes, we have set this goal of 10,000 to help with the printing of books and to also create an e-guide that we would distribute to legislators and educators um, in Illinois and then outside of Illinois as well. Um, But yeah, like what's driving our work is that we really care. Um, And like what I mentioned before, we really want to – show people not just say that like their stories matter and they matter as human beings um so that's i guess that's what's at the heart of our project um ikram what kind of difference does that make to hear that people want to hear those stories to to your community oh yeah sure so the only thing that when I, when I met with Sarah last time, we spent maybe um, like we had to meet, like to meet for one hour, but we spent maybe two hours talking about uh, the work that, that we do at uh, Iraqi Mutual Aid. And uh, I was telling her that I really feel now that there's a lot of like successful stories, like like I can see every day when I see my like our clients. But I believe that no one knows about that. So, um, so thank God that um, Sarah she's she's willing to help us to start like um, like like writing s- some stories, like um, we serve refugee and immigrant and asylum seekers. So we have like different groups of people. Uh, we focus on Middle Eastern. Uh, at the, at the, if you if you look at like like our clients, um, I mean you'll be amazed that we, we like there's really a, like um, a, it's. A life changing. That's what, what 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 I what I can say. That is uh, life changing. I mean, they really, when they come here, um, it's it's clear that they are separated from their families. You know, they leave like their their families, their their life there, and at the beginning, they really need support and help. So what we do, uh, like at Iraqi Mutual Aid, we we support them and we help them. We walk we we, we walk with them like uh, like a long term uh, to help them to be strong and to be um, effective in the community. So I believe that stories, uh, like if you tell your story, that's gonna make a difference for for other people, because 
I believe when I hear somebody's stories, I feel like that makes me feel like really understand and makes me feel like really empathy about them, right? Right. So, um, Melanie, do you see s- asylum seekers um, all the time? Is there are there a certain percentage of them not getting asylum? Is there a large percentage of people who don't get asylum who are seeking it in this country? There definitely are people that are not given asylum, um, and many of these people still face a threat of death if they're returned to home country. It's just that our asylum laws are very restricted in terms of who who and how you get asylum. Um, but there are, there are about 20,000 people a year that get asylum, and that's not a huge number. Um, we have not had any case um, of someone that's come to our house that has not gotten asylum, but certainly uh, we have a deportation program as well, and so we would see in that program people who didn't win their case who are being deported. And people in the deportation program, there's um, how does that work? If we, we, there's an air, airport in Gary that people are shipped out at? Yeah, the um, Jerome Combs Detention Center in Kankakee is a facility out of which people are deported. And so immigrants are taken to that detention center prior to their deportation. And our our program is down there on Fridays working with families that are coming to say goodbye that can give a duffel bag to someone, a little bit of money, and have a goodbye by tablet with their loved one. And then we go on to the buses as well, and we um, say a prayer of protection for the people that are being deported. Uh, what are these circumstance, what are circumstances like for a lot of these people? Is there a typical situation, or does everything seem uh, atypical? The people being deported? Yeah. It's a wide variety of things. Um, We see people that have not been here except asking for asylum who are deported, and we also see folks who have had a lifetime here. And so they are grandfathers or grandmothers, and they're being deported to home country where they have no family left, they haven't lived there in 20 or 30 years, and they're being made to return. And that's largely because of the zero tolerance policy? Um, What we've seen, especially under this administration, is them going further and further back into a criminal history. So we might see a man who had a DUI in 1984 who has not had another incident with the law. And now they're looking at that, and it's a deportable offense. And so they're being made to leave. So you you see things like that uh, on a regular basis? Yes. Um, Sarah, what are some of your favorite stories that you've been able to share in in, in the 90 Days, 90 Voices series? Hmm, That's a good question. Um, I would say, um, of course, one of my favorite stories is about Hadia Zarzur, um, who um, is a therapist here in Chicago. Um, She's from Damascus. She's a great person. Um, and, uh, she started working in therapy in Syria and then came here, um, was forced to stay here, um, for various reasons and, um, continues to do work, to do therapy work, um, and counseling here, um, with a lot of, um, people who have been resettled as refugees, um, particularly with Syrians. And I just, her story really, um, means a lot to me because um, she talks about the importance of mental health, which is something that I think expands across 
you know, cultures. Um, but also, um, you know, like she talks about the, um, like the trauma and also the courage that it takes to restart a life here and still really long for your home, um, which is something that I think why it's my favorite is that that really is um, an, like a thread that is in every story that we do. I mean, I've, I've interviewed from and talked to, I don't know, like hundreds of people. And that's what I always hear is that, you know, despite oftentimes like having to leave your home and having gone through some pretty horrific th- things, um, whether that's um, being targeted for your religion or um, your gender um, or having to leave because of war, um, people always miss their home, you know? And I think that's something we often, you know, I want to say that's something that people don't really understand is that, um, you know, people are trying to build a new life here, but they do long for their home where they come from. Um, And they miss a lot about that place. And um, yeah, that's just something I really loved about her piece. But yeah, I would say that's one of my favorite, um, my favorite stories on our site. Uh, For people who are looking for more information and would like to help and hear stories about uh, like that, uh, how do they help with Asylum City? Sure. Um, So, of course, we do have a Kickstarter right now. Um, You can find a link to it on our website, uh, 90days90voices.com. But we also are looking for people that want to tell their stories. Um, uh, You can reach out to us through our website. Um, We're always looking for people that want to share their story. Um, also people who are interested, um, whether they're journalists or storytellers, um, working with us, we're interested in that as well. Um, well, thanks for joining us, Sarah Conway, Editorial Director of 90 Days, 90 Voices. Thanks also to Melanie Shikori, Executive Director of the Interfaith Community for Detained Immigrants. If people want more information about that, they can see the website. Uh, where's, what's the website? Address? Our website is icdichicago.org. And we right now are especially in need of temporary housing in the community for people released from detention who just need a few nights to stay before they move on. And Ikram Hanna is Community Engagement Specialist at the Iraqi Mutual Aid Society. You've got a website, too? Sure, yeah. I mean, if you want to learn more about the work that we do in Chicago area, just visit our website, www.iraqimutualaid.org. Thank you all for joining us and changing the narrative about uh, asylum seekers in this country. Tomorrow on Worldview, we are going to have a chat about the post-election fallout. Hope you can join us then. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Viviana Garcia-Blanco for production assistance and Mike Gilmore for engineering. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. WBEZ.